This is The Think Tank with Dr. Michael Neal, talking about the major political, economic, and social issues of the week. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We have a lot of uh, old wisdom at the table uh, in this week's Think Tank. Herb uh, Payne is a business strategy consultant and social critic. He once ran for Congress, and he's a regular columnist both for the Republic and for KJAZ. Marty Schulz has been well-known in this town for many decades. Retired lobbyist, worked for APS for, I think, 35 years, as well as for the then mayor of Phoenix in a couple, three or four years with the Phoenix Sons. He was the driving force behind many public initiatives, particularly in the area of transportation and education. Welcome, guys. Glad to to be here. Herb, a question to you uh, that I want uh, us all to weigh in on President Biden's speech on threats to democracy. Uh, Do you accept the premise that our very democracy is under unprecedented threat? I do. No doubt about it. Uh, when I ran for Congress about in 2006, my opening statements at the, at the beginning of every presentation was that democracy was at risk, that there were forces being unleashed whose intent was to upend decades of social and economic progress. Uh, it was a reactionary movement that had its origins decades even earlier uh, now, nearly 16 years later, uh, I see that warning even more legitimate. Uh, President Trump unleashed uh, the dark underbelly of this country and gave license to forces that have been with us for years. And now I see our democracy at risk with forces that are seeking to undermine our our institutions, our democracy. Yes, uh, Mike, I think it's as legitimate as ever. And frankly, I think it was a speech long overdue and necessary. If anything, I'm more alarmed that major broadcast networks chose not uh, to cover or carry that speech because I think it's a message that needs to be heard. Uh, some have claimed it's divisive. I think it's the most important speech he's made uh, during his administration. You were prescient if you saw this in 2006 because I look upon that as the good old days. <laughs> Marty, your take. Well, I um, did not mind and maybe even appreciated the fact that the president raised the issue of democracy, which I think has been fundamental to all the campaigns that I've ever been involved in or known about in this state, let alone this country. So to talk about democracy is and all the elements of democracy makes a whole lot of sense. But Herb with all due respect, made it sound like, you know, we're in a crisis situation. And I don't think that this election is a whole lot different in many ways than previous elections that I've experienced for four or five decades, with this exception. Once upon a time in this state, we had one or two radio stations and one or two newspapers. Now we have, you know, social media, we have a lot of outlets. And so there's a lot more conversation. And maybe the value, the conversation, the heightened uh, tone of the conversation causes people to get a little more alarmed. But the conversation is the same. It's about democracy, and the president was right. Let me tell you what democracy is. Democracy is debate. And I'll give you an example of a negative. I can't understand why uh, Katie Hobbs is not willing to debate 
Kerry Lake in Arizona for this election. I think, in my recollection, that's the first time that Ted Simons, the person on PBS that does this kind of thing, is not going to get a chance to work with those two on a debate setting. I realize they can go individually and make their comments, but that's democracy to me. The other thing about democracy is the election process. While I am really upset with what uh, Trump and his uh, guys and gals did with regard to including Arizona politicians declaring somehow that uh, he won when he lost, the truth is that a debate, a healthy debate and discussion on how we elect our uh, representatives is a fundamental part of democracy. So I'm actually um, heralding all of this conversation, even though it is loud, it's biting, uh, it's controversial, and it does get into ugly. But it also is the fundamental of our being, if you will, the success of our country, and that is democracy. Let, so, let me suggest, if I could, something about what uh, the issue of what is democracy. It's Democracy is easy when you win. You know, you win, everybody likes it. But up until the last election, in every instance, there may be some minor offices where this is. If you lose, you make a concession speech. You announce that you are going to help the the winner in any way you can, even though you're not really going to. You, it, you're making that symbolic statement. When you pass the mantle for the presidency, you stand on the dais right next to the winning candidate. And, and it, it is a, one of those cases where symbolism is extremely important because you're saying to the world and particularly to the country, there is a legitimate transfer of power occurring here. And I might be very upset about the uh, election and the way it came out. And even in cases when there was legitimate question, and I can give you two of them, mm-hmm. and one is 1960 John Kennedy, and and the other is 2000 and uh, uh, Bush Gore, Thank where you, one could make legitimate, legitimate arguments that they got the outcome wrong. I mean, there was... There was cheating in Illinois and Texas on behalf of the Democrats. And in point of fact, in 2000, they, they didn't know this at, at, that, at the time, but the, a, a group of academics and newspapers went back the year following the election for an, as an academic exercise, and they counted every vote in the state. And they, they counted it not once, but four times using four different criteria. And in every single instance, regardless, of one, two, three, or four chads required Al Gore won Florida. But that's just an academic point. The point was Al Gore was on the dais basically asserting we honor the process and the process, even though it went through a screwy thing with the Supreme Court at the end that was questioned. Point is, we endorsed the process. And in the last election, there was no credible claim whatsoever. You know, they there were there were uh, our claims made. Every single was 60 some odd adjudicated in front of court, many of them in front of Republican judges, a bunch of them in front of Trump appointed judgment, and not a single one was found to have any validity whatsoever. In other words, we have looked at this thing six ways to Sunday. There is no way any uh, fair minded person at any level can say that this last election was tainted. And so um, you. 
look at those situations and you analyze them and you ask this question, as bad as that sounds, as unfortunate or bad as those circumstances were, is this going to topple our democracy? And that really is the celebration that I'm all about. And that is our democracy is strong. The fundamental concepts uh, are strong going all the way back to Washington through Lincoln. So here's President Abe Lincoln, who is the president as the country is going through not disagreement. They're going through war to tear the country apart. And we survived. I think that this circumstance and Maybe people didn't realize, but I'll announce it right now. Politics is a contact sport. It has been. There have been different levels of contact. Donald Trump has taken it up to a different and new level. I personally don't like it. I understand it, and I don't think it survives because I think people are going to come to common sense uh, reality of solutions to complex problems. That's the other thing. I would hope that uh, as we're talking about the process of democracy, the process of election, we don't forget what this is really all about, and that is our elected and appointed officials are supposed to help us resolve problems, not as government does control all the resolution of problems, but help solve problems. That all sounds good for a basic civics lesson in um, political science 101, but to your point, Mike, I, I think your assessment of the past is correct, but I don't. I think we're at a point of fragility in the uh, life cycle of this nation that is truly at risk. I think we have arrived at a convergence, at uh, an inflection point where you have a mix of a failures of governance at the national, even the local levels where you have the commercialization and polarization of the media that only fuel the, the worst of the bad news. You have excessive manipulation of the media, the balkanization of our country into tribes uh, where folks bunker down into their uh, their safe venues uh, and are not and, and in terms of debate, sure, debate has been one of the foundations of our democracy. But in an environment where discourse is no longer civil, uh, where, uh, I mean, I think we're in, in great danger. And the worst part of it, and I don't think this has ever happened before, is the abandonment of a major party from its founding principles. It is against democracy. It's against the Constitution. That's dangerous for us. We'll be back after the break with Herb Payne and Marty Schultz when we return in the Think Tank. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're back with Herb Payne and Marty Schultz talking about the uh, status of our democracy. I got a question for you, Marty. And I know your connection to sort of the establishment Republican Party is pretty good. So I, I, I'm just and I ask this not having a faintest idea how you're going to answer that. But you have a sort of a business conservative establishment end of the Republican Party that I think you're pretty well connected into. This is who you've worked with and yeah, for that's for many, many years. Um, the sort of Trump element of the of the party is populist and it, it has lots of elements that really are quite different from that. Yet these folks are you know, traditional dyed-in-the-wool Republicans, how do they face an election looking at, uh, you know, where we have our 
our top four officers running for on, on the Republican ticket are election deniers. And uh, how does this group come out on uh, in a situation like that? Which uh, I see them as conflicted. Yeah, I think that the uh, Republican voter, uh, all the way from the very very conservative Trump. Uh, loyalist to uh, though would, many would argue that Trump isn't the ultimate conservative. That, but know, he is not. No, I. You know, I, I, I that's mean, no, that's yeah, correct. Yeah. I wouldn't. But I'm, but they are loyal to his mm-hmm. uh, edicts and his commentary, commentary all the way to the left wing. In other words, more moderate Republicans. They're going to have to because of all the noise in politics today. They're going to have to make tougher decisions because it isn't as clear as mm-hmm. oh look they're all. John Kyle or somebody in that mold. I mean, there's okay. a folks that that you know, probably many cases never voted for a Democrat in their whole life, but yeah. they're not Trumpists. But but the you know, going back to what Herb said, because when I uh, got done listening to Herb, I thought that uh, you know, sky was falling, and uh, I'm not sure that I could uh, make it out of the building because there's such a crisis. And I know the president <laughs> attempted to uh, do that to uh, create uh, a mentality of crisis. I think that there are significant differences, but I'm not going to buy crisis because we have, uh, you know, 200 plus years of history of uh, hysterics and, oh, my God, these the sky is falling. These are serious problems. These are serious issues that we face. And one of the fundamentals, democratic uh, and democracy oriented fundamental solutions is not all government. Government has a role, but they aren't all in, in my opinion, uh, to be the deciders of everything. And that's where our business community uh, needs to begin to think about what were the fundamentals that caused uh, the leaders of the last four or five decades that I was involved in to be so successful. Well, the business leaders, in fact, took off their (laughs) fancy jackets and put their uh, hands into the process and got Involved with water and transportation and growth and development and governance. I mean, once upon a time in Phoenix, we were uh, a governance. Uh, we voted uh, at large, and now we have districts. And there are a number of changes that have been made. And that these, was that was over the dead body of the establishment, though. Well, no. Originally, uh, it was because one or two individuals, like uh, my friend Terry Goddard, and even later on Paul Johnson mm-hmm. and others advocated for that kind of thing. They were the outsiders, though. Yeah, but that's, you know what, they were the outsiders, but the business community was there to deal with that issue of how do we govern, Mm -hmm. but then come together, work the process, because that was the legal process, Mm -hmm. and still keep their hand in every one of the major issues that have uh, confronted Arizona over the last 50 years. They did not rely exclusively on governance, (gasps) on, on... government uh, to dictate what the answers were. And that is, uh, when I hear Herb talk and I hear President Biden talk, I just wonder, are they thinking that the solution is that we have our elected government just tell us what the answers are to paying back uh, student loans or war or uh, economy and economic development, Arizona. I think there has to be a mix. That's what I believe is uh, the definition of democracy. And uh, yeah, there's some outliers here on both sides. Uh, if we want to talk extreme left wing, whether it's an AOC or uh, Bernie Sanders or uh, an Elizabeth Warren, and then on the 
more conservative side, not the ultimate conservative side, got individuals who are election deniers and who took their protest uh, to a length that was totally inappropriate uh, January 6th in... Yeah, it wasn't uh, a protest. It was a violent... I mean, it was an insurrection. It, it, I mean, it was right. violent. It was protest, an insurrection. to change the result exactly. through violent action. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. So these are extremes. Mm-hmm. The extremes, if they were to succeed on both sides, left and right, we would be in a world of hurt. And I don't think that's happening because I think the definition and the process of democracy lends to a balance between the economic community, the public, and the government uh, dealing with the solutions to problems. Herb? Wow. Uh, There are so many elements that if we have to unbundle this, uh, Mike, you asked the initial question about Biden's speech. And my sense is that it was necessary to call out what is antithetical to all of the principles that you've articulately espoused, Marty. I agree with you that one of the great values in American democracy has been a social contract where there have been clear lines of accountability, responsibility between the corporate sector and the public sector and individuals. That has always worked. But I have never before seen a situation in which there is a concerted effort to undermine the foundations of our democracy through what is, and I know this may be controversial to you, but virtually a coup d'etat. I don't think that's an exaggerated statement when there are efforts by candidates for secretaries of state throughout the United States who are not only deniers, but are committed to undermining or challenging the vote if they lose. I mean, you talked about part of this is, I think, a very dangerous element. It's not about you know, I think we've shifted from elected government telling, okay. We got a break. We're, yep. we're at a we'll hard break at, uh, at uh, the half. We will return uh, with her pain and uh, Marty Schultz in just a moment. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're here with Herb, uh, Herb Payne and Marty Schultz and want to uh, change the topic. The subject of educational vouchers uh, has been uh, vociferously debated in this state for years. And there has been a major development this year when the legislature passed the budget. They took the caps off. And basically, any uh, student in the state whose parents want to pull their kids out of public school can do so and take with them a $7,500 voucher to be used in any school of their choice or for or to aid homeschooling. And uh, the teachers who were against this, public school teachers, Save Our Schools and others, argued most of that money is going to come from people who are already in public schools. Are, I'm sorry, already in private schools. And uh, the mm-hmm. data that are, that are in um, at this point suggests that they were correct. The people who signed up for vouchers at this point, 75% of them were not in public schools. So it looks like they were right in that in that regard. The significance of that is that if a kid leaves the public school to go to a private school, there's at least the argument that you've reduced the burden on that public school by a certain amount of money. Now, the schools argue, you know, if you have a school with 300 kids in it and 10 of them leave, 
you really haven't reduced their cost by $75,000. You're probably going to need this unless you're in a like in a grade where all of a sudden in this one grade, you know, go you go from two teachers to one. That's pretty hard. Uh, you know, if it, 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 it's very hard to see where that savings really comes from. But uh, the other aspect of this is that Save Our Schools is passing petitions right now. And that their track record's pretty darn good with the, the success of this. If they get, by the end of this month, the requisite number of signatures, then this will be held in abeyance until it goes to the ballot in 2024, <laughs> and it will delay all. If they don't get those signatures certified this month, then this takes effect immediately. So uh, we're... We're awaiting that, but I wanted to, uh, you know, discuss that issue. I'll go to you first, Herb. Uh, your take on all this. As you might expect, I'm, I'm an ardent advocate of the public school system, and I guess I have viewed these moves to um, transfer dollars uh, outside of the public school system to parochial schools, to home-based education, is a concerted effort to undermine one of the... Fun- we talked about the fundamentals of democracy. To me, the public school system, the whole concept of public school education is a vital element of democracy. And what we're doing, for whatever motivations, is denuding them of their capabilities to teach our kids. Uh, so I, I find all of this highly objectionable and, and uh, frankly, disastrous for, for the quality of our education. Well... Herb, um, I know how many things you and I agree on, uh, and the number is dwindling. <laughs> it appears beyond, to be. That's why you're that. both here. <laughs> um, first of all, what the legislature did this year was so predictable, I could see it, smell it, and taste it. So they've the wanted to do this for years. They've wanted to do it for years, and one of the reasons that they haven't been quicker to get it done like they did this year is that the public school advocates, be they superintendents, school boards, or others, they objected, objected, so they slowed down the process. This year they couldn't slow down the process, and it pretty much went to what was the desired state, which is to take 7000 dollars per student and make it available to every student. And that means if it didn't want to go to so-called public schools, uh, then uh, they wouldn't have to if they had good alternatives and they met the criteria. Here's the problem. When the state of Arizona was created, we also created a lot of processes, including school districts. And so if you examine every one of the 227 school districts in Arizona over the years, you will find out that they grew up consistent with the process of growth, communities, neighborhoods, and what have you. I'll give you a perfect example. In Phoenix, you have the Phoenix Union High School District, and then... When the Osborne District, an elementary district, was created, as far as they could see going north, they took that district all the way to Bethany Home Road. And then I could go on and on and give you examples of how growth dictated the school districts. But now we have 227. For many years, governors and others have, and legislators, and frankly, the business community, has been calling for a relook at the 227 school districts and the potential of unification, consolidation, but really efficiency improvement. What was the business principle behind that? If you don't have enough money in your tax base 
and you have too few students and you're paid on a per pupil basis, you're not able to spread what are your ultimate fixed costs over a large base. So you're paying your superintendent and you're doing uh, your own bus system and it goes on and on. The duplication is embarrassing. And when it comes down to paying teachers, oh my God, there's not enough money for teachers. I can show you in detail as the chairman of Janet Napolitano, I believe she was a Democrat at the time, her chairman of the committee to create these efficiencies, which we did, put the report together, went to the public. And what did the public school folks ultimately do? They went to court in order to uh, invalidate uh, much of our work. This idea of not melding public school thinking, uh, government schools have a place, and private schools and parochial schools and homeschooling, in other words, options for parents and for kids, is really crazy. And so instead of fighting, I think we should be reasoning together how to create efficiencies in providing public education in order to accomplish several things. Number one, we got to pay our teachers more uh, for a whole variety of reasons. Number two, We've got to eliminate the duplication and create the efficiencies in the school so that we can drive the technology and other needed parts of school districts uh, and school system work um, more effectively. It's, it's a business uh, equation to a great extent, and it should not be government versus everybody else. And that is a fundamental problem in Arizona, and it needs to be resolved. Frankly, I would call the next governor be she the Democrat or she, the Republican, to again look at unification and consolidation and creating efficiencies in schools. And then if they choose, which they will, they're going to choose to allow students to walk from public or government schools to other options because that's what parents should be able to do. They're doing this for their kids. I think there's a great solution here. It does take people coming together and reasoning together, which has been my message for about three decades. On this, you're absolutely right, Marty. The fact is that from a business point of view, economies of scale, consolidation, I mean, there are other cities throughout the country that have unified school districts. We have been laggard in being able to approach that in in a sane kind of a way. I think from a business point of view, there also needs to be more awareness about the developments in technology that could alter the way in which we educate. But isn't the other issue that... These transfers of dollars away from the public school system limit the ability of what public schools have always been about, and that is the leveling, the the shared um, education about fundamentals of our democracy, uh, of the sciences, of the arts. When you start transferring dollars away from a public school system to other schools or educational modes that have their own agendas, that may distance themselves from what is the unifying spirit of public school education, then I think we're tearing away at the roots of our democracy. We're balkanizing ourselves. That's my concern about the transfer of dollars to private schools, parochial schools, home-based education. It becomes so fragmented that we become tribes rather than a unified. We're taking the the unum out of the pluribus. (laughs) Herb, um, unfortunately... uh Your numbers are not correct. This year, the Arizona legislature and the governor signed a budget for $18 billion. Last year, it was $12 billion. The bulk of that increase went to education generally. So as far as actual dollars lost by 
public education, the government schools, you go talk to any district, and they're not going to tell you that they lost that much money because they still got it from the state in the allocation of a per-pupil expenditure. So there's more than, I don't say enough, but there's more money now than ever before in the history of Arizona for education generally. But it's true. They're now taking $7,000-plus out of the kitty to give people who choose who choose a free enterprise democratic principle to take their kids to schools. And let me tell you about these other schools. The schools then say, um, I don't get into one specific district, or not, but they'll say, okay, we specialize in fundamental education, reading, writing, mathematics, and maybe literature, and then they have their specialties. And then the parent says, you know what, that's where I want my kid to be. I want them to be knowledgeable in these areas. Then they go to those schools. Well, the Arizona Theater for the Arts, which is in central Phoenix, says, oh, the fundamentals are really important, but what's really important to me and to the school has to do with arts. And there are parents that want their kids to be singers, dancers. That's a big industry. A bottom line is I think we've got the basis for a real important compromise. But you know what? The educators, the public school educators, superintendents, school board, they've got to get off of it and start thinking not about themselves, but about the larger picture, which is what democracy is all about. Let me ask you about the equity aspect of this. Mm -hmm. We know now that three-quarters of these folks were already in a private school. Mm -hmm. That means that that money's going to upper-middle-class kids Mm -hmm. because basically private school is a lot more expensive than $7,500, and these kids that were in private schools were paying a lot. So we're subsidizing tuition that was going to buy upper middle class kids into expensive private schools. They're just getting $7,500 back. Not a whole lot of that is, is poor kids. Uh, you know, the so-called poor kids, let's say, in neighborhood who uh, that uh, are um, their average income may be less than uh, an area where I live um, because I, you know, was fortunate. Well, the truth is that many of those parents really would like to and do avail themselves of the private school um, option. And so they make the choice to take the seven and go elsewhere. But there are some limitations. One has to do with transportation. Because our transportation system needs a, a lot of work in order for us to match our transportation system to an urbanized area, which we are either fastly becoming or are already there, that's an issue uh, which actually can be resolved, but it needs to be resolved. So I think there are plenty of parents and families who are in the so-called low income or lower income who would love the option, if they could pull it off, to have their kids go to a school of their choice if the public school in their neighborhood doesn't work and fails them. We'll be back with Herb Payne and Barty Schultz in just a moment. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. Marty Schultz, you have been at the forefront, really, of several major transportation initiatives over the last 40 years, uh, often heading citizen committees uh, to get folks to, as we have done on numerous occasions, voluntarily tax ourselves. I've noticed that... uh, Taxing it, you think, oh, well, Arizona, we're conservative and we're against taxing. I found these initiatives, when they 
goals are clearly stated and the uh, need is widely perceived, we will tax ourselves. We've done so for transportation on number on a number of occasions. Where do we stand right now? Well, if we go back uh, probably 30 years or so uh, and the campaign to increase our sales tax one half cent for the purpose of uh, these funds going to the bonds to build freeways and light rail and other transportation initiatives, including technology, we're really doing well. Because when I started, we had zero freeways. What we now know is I-17 was the Black Canyon. I-10 did not go through the city of Phoenix. Mm-hmm. It stopped at 54th Avenue and started again way out on the Indian Reservation. We were the last Canada. segment in America of I-10. <laughs> so, and But we had no freeways. Mm-hmm. And if we had the time, I would be glad to tell you how all of them came about. But the bottom line is all of them did come about. So now we have 101, 202. I mean, people are enjoying the use of the freeways. But while it's now up to par in terms of kept keeping pace with the growth, if you believe we're going to continue at a fast pace in terms of growth all over the valley, then you've got to say, well, what are we going to do in the future? We were wise enough, give credit to our leaders uh, years ago, to say, okay, this tax is good for 30 years, and then in order for it to be extended, the people had to vote it again. Some of those 30-year deals are running out, aren't they? Yeah, that's the deal. So this year, what we thought, and that means a whole group of people, I mean, fabulous group of advocates from cities to counties to businesses to elected officials to uh, the people who actually build the roads, technical people who really have uh, the future of efficiency in mind. They all came together, and we got a bill at the Arizona legislature, which did pass. And by the way, along the way, there were a number of arrangements made for funding of major transportation uh, uh, facilities in our state going forward. But one of the key provisions was there was another vote. And when the governor got the bill... And he has an articulate, I didn't love it, but he does have an articulate veto message. It got vetoed. So we're back to the drawing boards, but it's the same drawing, and that is we're going to go through the legislature or whatever is a reasonable process to ask Arizona voters, but primarily Maricopa County, to extend the half-cent sales tax. No increase. Extend it so that we can continue to fund bonds that create – all of this construction, but this construction is not only freeways, which are the heart, and light rail, which is, uh, I think, extremely big success, just measured by the value of the properties adjacent to light rail that have gone up. But we have got people moving downtown, not downtown Phoenix only, that's downtown Tempe, downtown Mesa, downtown Glendale. It's unbelievable. And uh, I'm people sure you- do migrate to public transit corridors. And they and you get concentrations of of uh residences along cor- uh, along those rail lines. Yeah, some of my Republican friends, you know, are still going to tell me, Marty, do we really need light rail? But it used to be using four-letter words, we don't need light rail. Now mm-hmm. it's question, do we really need it? And fortunately, we have the data. But there's another feature behind the continuous building and expansion. It is, number one, electric vehicles will become more prominent, so that's a good news. Number two, light rail is going to become and continues to become more significant as we grow and develop. 
Uh, but number three, the advent of technology into transportation systems in Arizona is going to be at the forefront, and that creates efficiencies. The the final. Now, what what specifically do you have in mind in terms of well, there's there's ways that you can time lights. There's ways that you can actually uh, signal on freeways to keep. Uh, a maximum flow going as opposed to stop and go, mm-hmm. uh, a number of those kinds of things. Also, the technology in cars, which are compatible with the roadway systems, continue to improve. Uh, and we continue to, while we have some accidents, deal with issues of accidents and efficiency. That's all very positive. Let me tell you how fast we're growing. Uh, many people know that Metro Center is being torn down, as is Paradise Valley Mall. Uh, as was Papago Plaza that's on Scottsdale Road in McDowell. It took about 50 years for those shopping areas and those uh, areas uh, of development to occur from zero to what they were a few years ago. Now they're being torn down. So that took it 50 years to get to, let's call it maturity. I did a study of properties in New York City, Boston, and Chicago and in areas that are similar, obviously there's a different character, but in similar, it took them 100 years to get to what we got to in 50. So um, if you think about the pace of growth from an Arizona perspective, we have to have our arms around the transportation, housing policy. Housing policy is a, a real issue. I know you've covered it on your shows. Housing insecurity is a problem. Homeless is a problem. But these are real uh, issues that can be dealt with by rational people, Republicans, Democrats, not screamers. And we are. Uh, there's a zillion good examples of how we're attacking tough, complicated problems. But we're going through a process of growth at faster than virtually any other time in the history of the United States and any other area, including California. And by the way, 20 percent of our growth, people moving in here come from California. So what about, do you think water becomes a constraint on growth at some point? We seem to be stretching the limit there. I'm old enough to remember when I was involved with Bruce Babbitt. And the 1980 Water Act. 1980 yeah. Water Act. We wrote it. Mm-hmm. And the answer is it made sense at the time and it needs to be updated. But we also do have a circumstance that's going to require some real smart allocation. There's some parts that are, of the state that have really taken initiative, Phoenix metropolitan area, and they're in pretty good shape. Agriculture is still an issue uh, because they are the ones that use over 70% of all the water in the state, but they also contribute hugely to the economy. The tourism industry, they have golf courses uh, as part of their mix, and that needs to be resolved as well. So all these, and all these things are actually uh, going through discussion and pretty significant analysis right now. So it it is a matter of resolving the issue. Crisis, you know, I don't really do crisis. Maybe health, but other than that, I don't do crisis. I think what we're doing is intelligent. It's forward-looking. And uh, there's a lot of our leaders that, notwithstanding, you know, the politics of uh, bad rhetoric, are really doing a marvelous job. Well, when you get beyond the elected officials and to go to the back rooms where you've spent your life and you get the technocrats at the table, there's uh, very often, you know, take, a, I mean, water. It's it's ultimately political in that the, the nexus of uh, urban versus rural and agriculture, there's some real 
uh, survival aspects extinct, but essentially we share, you know, it's a finite resource. Uh, desalization isn't there. We're not going to, we're not going to, we're not going to desalinate our way out of this. Uh, no, but to the, to the governors uh, and the legislature's credit, uh, this year they put a billion dollars into uh, an allocation for a solution to the water yeah. project. Love to see that happen. Not sure if it's going to. Anyway, uh, I want to thank Herb Payne and uh, Marty Schultz for an interesting conversation. If you need to reach me, the website is michaelneal.org, and that's a vehicle to uh, to email or, or other social media. We'll see you next week in the Think Tank.